So that was what that was all about, and I really do believe uh, Jesus is the answer. Amen? Yeah, so hopefully I can pull myself together. I don't think I can cry through an entire sermon. Um, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 17, John chapter 17. Um, and as you look for that, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a, uh, an update or a little bit of an understanding of what's going on here. Jesus is with his disciples. It's the night before he's going to uh, go to the cross, and he's praying. Uh, this is what's become known as the, the priestly prayer. Uh, but he begins by praying for himself. Uh, then he prays for the apostles, the 12 apostles, and then he prays for everyone who will believe after the 12, everyone who comes to believe because of their witness, uh, he prays for them. So he is praying for us. We are the fruit of the witness of the apostles, right? We're looking at the book of John, one of the apostles. So, so Jesus is praying for us. So this is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. But Jesus, again, is praying. He says, I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their work, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22 says, the glory. Now, glory here is the unspoken manifestation of God. So just let that sink in for a minute because this sentence changes when you have that definition in mind. The unspoken glory manifestation of God. That's what he's talking about, okay? So this, this, there's something inside of us, there's something inside of Jesus that, that was a manifestation of God himself, right? So verse 22 says, the glory that you have given me, I give to them. God gives us, through Jesus, Jesus gives us this manifestation, unspoken manifestation of himself. That's pretty powerful in and of itself. That's enough of a sermon right there, but they pay me to talk more than that, so I'm going to. So then he says, again, in the end of verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. This is what empowers us to be one. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me. Think about that sentence. He says, they, I want them to know, God, Father God, that you love them, all of you, as much as you love me. The words of Jesus saying, God loves you as much as he loves his only begotten son. That's pretty powerful too, isn't it? A lot in this one, couple, just a couple verses here. So let me pray for us. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, settle my mind and my heart and allow me to uh, say what you want me to say. Uh, this morning, I pray that your spirit would continue to move in a powerful way. I pray that we would be one, just like you and the Father are one, that the world will know, that the world will know. Amen? So we're teaching through the book of Nehemiah in a series that we've called Broken. Kind of the thread, if you will, that runs through the entire series is that there's brokenness all around us. There's brokenness uh, in our homes. There's brokenness in our neighborhoods. There's brokenness in our community. Clearly, there's brokenness in the world. And we, as followers of Jesus, are called to step into that brokenness, that God is going to move in our lives. We are all called to be on mission and be a part of the rebuilding, to be about part of the, the restoration, and then to be a part of what God wants to do, which is to bring revival to the world, to bring people to, to the knowledge of Jesus himself. 
And in the middle of this series, there's a group of churches all around Metro Detroit that have uh, decided to do a unity series. And at first, it felt like it was something different. But to me, it's a perfect fit for the Nehemiah series. Because the truth is, the strength of the Nehemiah story is that the people came together in unity. When they came together to build the wall, that's when revival actually happened. So we kind of have this mini-series within a series. There's some 50 churches that are preaching this sermon, or at least the, the outline of this sermon. Uh, this morning all over Metro Detroit, and I just love that. I've seen on Facebook where people have posted uh, things from here, and other people have said, wow, that's amazing. We had the same sermon. They thought it was a coincidence. The exact same sermon. <laughs> anyway, so it's great. All these churches are, are teaching the same sermon. And, and personally, I love God's timing. Here we are. We've decided to come together, at least for the summer, together in one service, uh, and we're preaching on unity. It just feels like God's sovereignty for us, so it's a beautiful thing. So two weeks ago, I kicked off the series and I talked about four unity truths. And I just want to remind you of those four unity truths. The first one is we are, current tense, perfect present tense, united. That Jesus came and reconciled us to God. And because we're reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another. And the point that I wanted to make in that is that, that unity is not what we're working for. Unity is what we're working from. And it changes things when we have that mindset. So we are united. The question is, are we living out the unity that Christ paid such a high price for us to have? The second unity truth was we sabotage unity when we hold any identity marker above Christ. An identity marker is gender. Identity marker could be uh, your social status, your your um, race can be a, an identity marker. Your political leaning can be an identity marker. So when, when there's conflict between us because you are Republican and they are Democrat and we can't solve that conflict, that means we've held those two identity markers above Christ. And the passage that we looked at said that we should clothe ourselves, cover ourselves, our outer covering should be Jesus and everything else should be under that. And then the third unity truth was the spirit of God moves through unity, and we see this throughout the scripture. Whenever the people come together in unity, God shows up in a powerful way, whether it's building the tabernacle and the presence of God coming, or it's building the wall in Nehemiah, and there's this incredible revival that happens, or we looked at Acts, and when the people were together and of one accord, God added to their numbers daily. God moves in our unity. And one of the things I love, if you were here last week, Norflet rocked it. Was he good or was he good? It was a great Sunday. Yeah, it was amazing, actually. Um, but one of the things he pointed out that I loved is he said that it's not enough for us to be together. We have this beautiful mosaic in the room. Uh, it's not enough for us just to be together, but we have to go beyond Sunday morning. He used Acts 2.44 as a way of making that point because what it says of the Acts church is say that they were all, excuse me, it says, and all who believed were together, like we are together, and had all things in common. So the all things in common means that they lived in harmony, they shared their resources, they shared their struggles, that they were actually in community with one another. So our unity has to go beyond Sunday morning. It has to translate into our small groups, into the people we hang out with, right? All things in common. And then the fourth unity truth, which is the truth that we're gonna spend most of our time this morning talking about, is that our unity is what makes God known. Our unity is what makes God known. And I would say, that in the eyes of the world out there, the credibility of the gospel rides on unity. The people are looking at us 
And whether or not the gospel is real, whether or not the gospel has any kind of power in their minds rides on whether or not we are united or not. Many people have said this. I actually tried to find out who the original author of this quote is, and I couldn't find it, so we'll just give it to anybody and everybody. But the, the quote is that God is most glorified when we are most unified. God is most glorified when we are most unified. And, and we've talked about this a lot, but to glorify God is to make God known. So God is made known in our unity, right? God is most known when we as a people come together in unity. So this series we're talking about is broken, right? And I think we can all agree that unity, when it comes to the world, is broken, right? And the thing is, we shouldn't be surprised. When we stop and we look at the world and we see all the strife and we see all the fighting and we see uh, people coming against one another, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus told us this is exactly how it's going to be. So in Matthew 24, 7, uh, Jesus says these words, the beginning of that passage, he says, for nation, and remember last week, Norflet talked about how nation is ethos or people groups. It says, so people group will rise up against people group. Nation will rise against nation and kingdoms, and kingdoms here is could better or could be translated worldview. So like people, ethos, people groups are coming against people groups and worldview against worldview, ideology against ideology. Jesus is saying, guess what? That's the way it's going to be, so you should expect it. But then he says, but I want you to be different. I want my church to be known for something different than that because God is most glorified when we are most unified. So what this is, is it's a factor of contrast. So our eyes are designed to see contrast. Our eyes are, are trained actually to see contrast. And here's an, an example of that, that everyone who lives in Michigan will be able to relate to. If you've ever driven on a road in Michigan, then you've noticed that there are construction barrels, especially this time of year. Well, if you ever ask yourself, why are construction barrels orange or yellow? Well, it's so that we can see them because if they made them gray or black, you wouldn't see them and you would end up hitting them because your eyes are, seen, are, are trained to see contrast. So, so we have things like construction vests, right? And our guys in the parking lot, they wear these really cool vests. Why do they wear these really attractive vests? It's not a st fashion statement, right? Right? Because they want to be seen. Right, Because our eyes are trained to see bright colors. We don't put them out in the parking lot in blacks and grays so that they can get run over. We want you to be able to see them in their contrast. I was with a dear friend of mine a few years ago in Colorado, uh, Scott Shaman. We were standing on a, on a mountain, and we were looking across a big valley at a mountain across probably four or five miles to, to where we were looking. And with my naked eye, I could see a little orange dot moving across that mountain. Four or five miles away with my plane, I, I could see orange moving across the mountain. I got out my binoculars and I looked and it turned out it was a hunter and he was wearing, hunter's orange, he's wearing a vest actually, and he was moving across, four or five miles away in the midst of the woods, in the midst of the grass, in the midst of the shrubs, on a mountain, I could see him moving across because our eyes are trained to see contrast. I have to take this off, sorry. <laughs> so, if you still have John 17 open, I hope you do, look back at John 17 one more time. 
Jesus prays for his church. He prays for Grace Community Church, but he's praying for all the believers in all of the world, right? He says, look at verse 21. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I, and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The second part of verse 23 says, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and that you love them as you love me. The deal is, we ought to stand apart from the world. We ought to be like bright green construction vests and, and hunter's orange amidst the seas of gray and black. People ought to see something different about the church because God is most glorified when we are most unified. But the problem is, church, if we're honest with ourselves, in a sea of grays and blacks, we're just more gray and black. There really isn't too very often a distinguishable difference in our unity as a church. So if God is most glorified when we are most unified, the million dollar question is how? How are we to move into unity? How are we supposed to navigate unity? So turn to Acts chapter six, Acts chapter six. And what we have here is a beautiful case study of conflict, resolution, and unity. And it's a great case study for us because it's really when the church is just in its infancy, the church is brand new, the, 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 they're just getting themselves started. And this is a make or break moment for the church. Here they are, this fledgling church, trying to, to move in obedience to all the things Jesus has taught and this major conflict arises. And this is a good picture for us to understand how do we navigate conflict and and, and have a sense of unity. So Acts 6, I'm gonna read verses one through seven. It says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, in other words, the church was growing, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12, that's the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of disciples, the whole church, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicnor, and Timon, and Perminius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Look at verse seven, it says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. This is a great case study for us because the conflict is, is pretty severe. It's, it's actually pretty complex. It crosses over all kinds of identity markers. If you go back and you read that and just had that thing about identity markers that we talked about in your mind, you would see genders and you would see different people groups and you would see all of that. It involves uh, all, of, all of the things that tend to divide us. And what I like about the case study too is that, like I said, the church was just getting started, that this was a make or break moment. They were gonna get it right and launch a movement or they were gonna get it wrong and have the second apostolic church of Jerusalem form or something, right? And one of the things that it reminds me of and, and, and kind of encourages me is that if we're gonna do this thing called church together, if we're gonna live in community, we're gonna have conflict. 
If you really read through the epistles, the writings to the churches, a lot of it deals with the conflict. So conflict is something that we ought to expect. So if we know conflict is gonna come, then we ought to have some sort of understanding of how do we navigate conflict. If you get married and think that you're never gonna have any conflict, you're in big trouble. You gotta learn to navigate the problems that come when you're in a relationship with somebody. And the same is true for us as a church. The early church becomes known for love, compassion, benevolence, inclusion. It's really a part of what makes the church go viral, if you will. I don't know if you know it, but even slaves become church leaders in the early church. Women play a prominent role in the early church. But if the church had failed this early test, I think they would have become known pretty quickly as an exclusionary group, a group that marginalizes minorities, minimizes the concerns of others. So... We should expect conflict at home. We should expect conflict in the church, right? But we need to learn to navigate it. And here what we, here what we have, just to bring a little more clarity, is, is that the, the, the conflict was brought to them by the Hellenists, right? So the people that are bringing the conflict are the people who didn't grow up in, in Judea. They're not uh, the, the speaking the native tongue. Pretty good odds they were probably Greek-speaking. Uh, they, they're foreigners, if you will, right? But they're believers, and they've come into the church, and they bring a complaint against the, the group that is from Jerusalem. So you have this, this group of Hebrew believers, and they're from Jerusalem, and they, they have all the context. They probably hold more of the social standing, more of the power in the community, right? So it's, it's really a picture of, of one group that has power kind of lording over, if you will, or, or not treating a group that doesn't have power well. But what I want you to see is, is with the language difference and the fact that they're from out of town, you have differences in attitude, you have difference in customs, you have difference in outlooks, you have difference in languages. These are all the things that tend to divide us if we're not careful. There's no question that the people who have power are mistreating or not treating the people who don't have power well. So Act 6, there are three principles that we can apply for preserving unity. And I want you to hear this. These principles apply to the church, but they apply to your home. They apply to your neighborhood. They apply to your workplace, right? And the first principle for preserving unity is empathy. This is um, probably more obvious by what's not in the text than by what's in the text. If you read through it, you're not gonna see any justification of bad behavior, right? You're not gonna hear any defensiveness on the part of the apostles. You don't see them saying, hey, do you have any idea how busy we are? Right, do you know what we go through? Do you know how hard it is to lead this fast-growing church that Jesus has put us in charge of? There's no dismissing it. There's no saying, hey, it's probably not as bad as you're making it out to be, right? There's no there's none of that language that would, would cause somebody to feel like they're being dismissed. Unity only happens when we learn to listen to one another. Unity happens when we learn to listen to one another. When we do our best to empathize, to feel what's going on. Nothing hurts more and fosters division than having your pain dismissed or minimized or explained away. So if Meg comes to me and tells me that I've done something that hurt her, the first most important thing I can do is try to listen in a way that I can feel what she feels, that I can understand that I've done something that's caused her pain. Now, I don't always get this right. When I don't get it right, I say something like, well, honey, you know I didn't mean to do that, right? I'm explaining away 
her pain. So the first step we have to get to is that place of, of listening, of empathy. So when Flett is on the stage last week and he was talking about Caleb and, and his fear of his son who was reaching for his ID, his fear that his son is going to be met with physical violence, right? And, and if you were here and you heard it, it's a, it was a powerful moment in time. Look, I don't have to solve that, but I have to recognize that I have a friend who fears for the life of his son, and it makes me sad that he has to deal with that. Look, he has to have conversations with his son. Gerald has conversations with his boys that I've never had to have with my kids. Look, I don't have to be the reason for that, but it's good for me to understand that that's just not right. It's broken, right? And, and it's okay to just feel that. I think sometimes in our discomfort, we just want to get away from it. We, just, we don't want to deal with it. So when, when we have something like the, 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 the tragedy in Minnesota, and part of us just want to put our head in the sand, and part of what we need to do is we just need to go to a friend who's, who's of color and say, how is this affecting you? How is this story of this young man being killed affecting you? What are you going through? What are you talking about in your house? What's going on? And just allow their emotions to be with you. I heard a pastor say this week, we just need to learn to weep with those who weep. It's what we're called to do. It's a beautiful picture. But here's the deal. Empathy is not enough, right? Imagine if the apostles, so these people came and they had this complaint. Imagine if the apostles said, man, we feel bad for you. Good luck with that. That's terrible. I hope it works out for you. Right? So, so empathy is not enough. There, there's a need for something else. So the second principle for preserving unity is solidarity. The fact is they brought all of the people together. The passage in verse 2 says, and they 12 summoned the full number of disciples. That's another way of saying they summoned the entire church. What I want you to see is they came together in unity, not as a separatist group. Now, this is a dangerous place for me, and I question whether or not I was going to say this, but I need to put it in here. We are preaching a message uh, that is being delivered in over 50 churches, and the person that wrote uh, the outline of this message is Chris Brooks at Evangel Ministries. I love Chris. Um, and these are the exact words he wrote. He said, the early church stood in solidarity, so there was no need for a group called Grecian Lives Matter. When we stand in solidarity against injustice, everyone wins. Right? Several years ago in this church, long before I was ever on staff or even knew that I would be on staff, um, we watched a series of documentaries on um, the, the, the civil rights movement. And uh, as much as it's hard for me to say this, uh, I really was clueless. I didn't grow up in even talking. I mean, I knew it existed and I probably knew the key players by name, but I really didn't know much about the civil rights movement. Um, and so the documentary was just kind of mind-blowing, earth-shattering for me personally, just to kind of open my eyes to a whole world that I didn't even know um, existed. And one of the things that, that really struck me and broke my heart was a small number of white Christians and white churches that rose to the occasion and stood in solidarity with the people of color, their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I remember being sad about that and something shifted inside of me. And I decided in that moment that when the opportunity to do justice came, I was gonna move, I was gonna do something. I wasn't gonna sit 
idly by. This became a big catalyst for Eagle Sports and for sore tutoring. It's a, a way for us as a church to do justice, right? To step into the brokenness that's around us and be part of rebuilding and restoring and reviving something. So we have a chance to stand with literally hundreds of churches across Metro Detroit and teach kids to read. We have a chance to stand together in solidarity. So 14% of third graders in the Detroit public school system read at grade level. Look, that's an injustice. And we just have a chance to step into the injustice and be a part of the solution, right? And, and I remember back in watching that documentary, I remember praying God, I wish I could stand in the gap. I wish I could stand for injustice. And God said as clearly as he could say it, you can. You can. Injustice is all around us. That's the whole point of this series. Are you just willing to see what's broken and step into what's broken in the way that God has called you to step into it? It's our unity that validates and gives credibility to the gospel. When we stand as one church united, revival in Detroit is gonna happen. So, three principles. Empathy, solidarity, and action. We allow ourselves to enter the feelings of others when we join with them. Meg comes to me with a problem and, and we talk about it and we decide what we're gonna do together to solve the problem in solidarity, but we still have to do something, right? In this, in this case, what did they do? They selected a group of men, but if you were to dig into it a little bit further, you would discover that all of the men that they selected had names that kind of lead us to believe that they were the very people that were being left out of the distribution. They were the, the, the Hellenistics or the Grecian believers. So all of those guys were the ones who are being oppressed and they're empowered to be a part of the solution. So they're, they have solidarity, they're doing it together and they're empowered to bring about the solution. But check out what happens when the Acts Church gets it right, verse seven. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's amazing. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The church had conflict. We have conflict. We have conflict in our home. We have conflict in the church. But the church rose above the conflict. They practiced empathy and solidarity. They moved with action. And the church was united. And a great number of priests, numbers were added to them daily, but a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know what happened? Jesus' prayer in John 17 was answered. What did he pray? He prayed that they would be one, that the world would know. They were one and the world knew and they became obedient to the faith because God is most glorified when we are most unified. We're gonna move to communion. And I love that we're moving to communion because really communion is established for us to celebrate and unite. That's why the instructions are if you come to the table and you have angst with your brother, if there's something going on in you, if you have a conflict that's unresolved with somebody, wait, go make it right, right? Go make it right with them before you come to the table that God is obsessed with unity. He wants us to be one. So we're gonna come, we're gonna partake of the elements, the band is gonna come up and we're gonna sing a couple more songs. But I just want you to, to ask the God, where's the conflict? What's going on that, that, that you need 
God to step into? Where's the crisis in your life? Going all the way back to where we were just a few minutes ago when we talked about the, the traumas that so many of you are facing. Jesus really is the answer to every problem you're facing. So the ushers are gonna pass the elements out. If you would just hold them for a minute, we'll take them all together. But allow me just to pray for you as they're coming out. Lord, I just pray for us as we take your body, as we take your blood, as we take this amazing sacrament of, of what you've done for us. Lord, would you use it to bring about change in our lives? I pray that, that even in these elements that there would be healing that goes forth, that, that you would remove pain and bitterness and sickness. As the people prayed this morning for the church, they said that, that the word they got was surprise. Would you surprise us as we partake of your precious communion? Jesus' name. So just hold the elements and we'll take together. about how difficult it would be for me to do anything that God was calling me to do in the midst of my heart being broken by betrayal of a friend. But on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, every time you eat this, remember me. says in the same way he took the cup, Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, help us to remember the power of the cross, the power of the name of Jesus. Help us to be one just as you and the Father are one that the world will know. Thank you for this gift of communion to remind us, to recenter us, to pray that healing would go forth. Scriptures say after they had taken the meal, they went away singing a hymn. So we're going to sing together because that's what I like to do after communion. So John's going to lead us in a song. So let's stand and let's sing. Worthy is the king, sing. 